Section 18 of the Kerner Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eric Evans, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Report of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders. Kerner Commission Report. Chapter 2. Patterns of Disorder. The Riot Process. The Commission has found no typical disorder in 1967 in terms of intensity of violence and extensiveness of damage. To determine whether, as is sometimes suggested, there was a typical riot process, we examined 24 disorders which occurred during 1967 in 20 cities and three university settings. We have concentrated on four aspects of that process. The accumulating reservoir of grievances in the Negro community. Precipitating incidents and their relationship to the reservoir of grievances. The development of violence after its initial outbreak. The control effort, including official force, negotiation, and persuasion. We found a common social process operating in all 24 disorders in certain critical respects. These events developed similarly over a period of time and out of an accumulation of grievances and increasing tension in the Negro community. Almost invariably, they exploded in ways related to the local community and its particular problems and conflicts. But once violence erupted, there began a complex interaction of many elements, rioters, official control forces, counter-rioters, in which the differences between various disorders were more pronounced than the similarities. The Reservoir of Grievances in the Negro Community Our examination of the background of the surveyed disorders revealed a typical pattern of deeply held grievances which were widely shared by many members of the Negro community. The specific content of the expressed grievances varied somewhat from city to city, but in general, grievances among Negroes in all the cities related to prejudice, discrimination, severely disadvantaged living conditions, and a general sense of frustration about their inability to change those conditions. Specific events or incidents exemplified and reinforced the shared sense of grievance. News of such incidents spread quickly throughout the community and added to the reservoir. Grievances about police practices, unemployment and underemployment, housing, and other objective conditions in the ghetto were aggravated in the minds of many Negroes by the inaction of municipal authorities. Out of this reservoir of grievance and frustration, the riot process began in the cities which we surveyed. Precipitating Incidents In virtually every case, a single triggering or precipitating incident can be identified as having immediately preceded, within a few hours and in generally the same location, the outbreak of disorder. But this incident was usually a relatively minor, even trivial one, by itself substantially disproportionate to the scale of violence that followed. Often it was an incident of a type which had occurred frequently in the same community in the past without provoking violence. We found that violence was generated by an increasingly disturbed social atmosphere, in which typically not one, but a series of incidents occurred over a period of weeks or months prior to the outbreak of disorder. Most cities had three or more such incidents. Houston had ten over a five-month period. These earlier or prior incidents were linked in the minds of many Negroes to the pre-existing reservoir of underlying grievances. 
With each such incident, frustration and tension grew until at some point a final incident, often similar to the incidents preceding it, occurred and was followed almost immediately by violence. As we see it, the prior incidents and the reservoir of underlying grievances contributed to a cumulative process of mounting tension that spilled over into violence when the final incident occurred. In this sense, the entire chain, the grievances, the series of prior tension-heightening incidents, and the final incident, was the precipitant of disorder. This chain describes the central trend in the disorders we surveyed, and not necessarily all aspects of the riots or of all rioters. For example, incidents have not always increased tension, and tension has not always resulted in violence. We conclude only that both processes did occur in the disorders we examined. Similarly, we do not suggest that all rioters shared the conditions or the grievances of their Negro neighbors. Some may deliberately have exploited the chaos created out of the frustration of others. Some may have been drawn into the melee merely because they identified with or wished to emulate others. Some who shared the adverse conditions and grievances did not riot. We found that the majority of the rioters did share the adverse conditions and grievances, although they did not necessarily articulate in their own minds the connection between that background and their actions. Newark and Detroit presented typical sequences of prior incidents, a buildup of tensions, a final incident, and the outbreak of violence. Newark. Prior Incidents. 1965. A Newark policeman shot and killed an 18-year-old Negro boy. After the policeman had stated that he had fallen and his gun had discharged accidentally, he later claimed that the youth had assaulted another officer and was shot as he fled. At a hearing, it was decided that the patrolman had not used excessive force. The patrolman remained on duty, and his occasional assignment to Negro areas was a continuing source of irritation in the Negro community. April 1967. Approximately 15 Negroes were arrested while picketing a grocery store which they claimed sold bad meat and used unfair credit practices. Late May, early June. Negro leaders had for several months voiced strong opposition to a proposed medical dental center to be built on 150 acres of land in the predominantly Negro Central Ward. The dispute centered mainly around the lack of relocation provisions for those who would be displaced by the medical center. The issue became extremely volatile in late May when public blight hearings were held regarding the land to be condemned. The hearings became a public forum in which many residents spoke against the proposed center. The city did not change its plan. Late May, June. The mayor recommended appointment of a white city councilman who had no more than a high school education to the position of secretary to the Board of Education. Reportedly, there was widespread support from both whites and Negroes for a Negro candidate who held a master's degree and was considered more qualified. The mayor did not change his recommendation. Ultimately, the original secretary retained his position and neither candidate was appointed. July 8. Several Newark policemen, allegedly including the patrolman involved in the 1965 killing, entered East Orange to assist the East Orange police during an altercation with a group of Negro men. Final Incident July 12, approximately 9.30 p.m. A Negro cab driver was injured during or after a traffic arrest in the heart of the Central Ward. Word spread quickly, and a crowd gathered in front of the 4th Precinct Station House across the street from a large public housing project.
Initial violence. Same day, approximately 11.30 p.m. The crowd continued to grow until it reached 300 to 500 people. One or two Molotov cocktails were thrown at the station house. Shortly after midnight, the police dispersed the crowd, and window breaking and looting began a few minutes later. By about 1 a.m., the peak level of violence for the first night was reached. Detroit. Prior incidents. August 1966. A crowd formed during a routine arrest of several Negro youths in the Kirchival section of the city. Tensions were high for several hours, but no serious violence occurred. June 1967. A Negro prostitute was shot to death on her front steps. Rumors in the Negro community attributed the killing to a vice squad officer. A police investigation later reportedly unearthed leads to a disgruntled pimp. No arrests were made. June 26th. A young Negro man on a picnic was shot to death while reportedly trying to protect his pregnant wife from assault by seven white youths. The wife witnessed the slaying and miscarried shortly thereafter. Of the white youths, only one was charged. The others were released. Final Incident July 23, approximately 3.45 a.m. Police raided a blind pig, a type of nightclub in the Negro area which served drinks after hours. Eighty persons were in the club, more than the police had anticipated, attending a party for several servicemen, two of whom had recently returned from Vietnam. A crowd of about 200 persons gathered as the police escorted the patrons into the police wagons. Initial violence, approximately 5 a.m. As the last police cars drove away from the blind pig, the crowd began to throw rocks. By 8 a.m., looting had become widespread. Violence continued to increase throughout the day, and by evening reached a peak level for the first day. In the 24 disorders surveyed, the events identified as tension-heightening incidents, whether prior or final, involved issues which generally paralleled the grievances we found in these cities. The incidents identified were of the following types. Police actions. Some 40% of the prior incidents involved allegedly abusive or discriminatory police actions. Most of the police incidents began routinely and involved a response to, at most, a few persons rather than a large group. A typical incident occurred in Bridgeton, New Jersey, five days before the disturbance when two police officers went to the home of a young Negro man to investigate a non-support complaint. A fight ensued when the officers attempted to take the man to the police station, and the Negro was critically injured and partially paralyzed. A Negro minister representing the injured man's family asked for suspension of the two officers involved pending investigation. This procedure had been followed previously when three policemen were accused of collusion in the robbery of a white-owned store. The Negro's request was not granted. Police actions were also identified as the final incident preceding 12 of the 24 disturbances. Again, in all but two cases, the police action which became the final incident began routinely. The final incident in Grand Rapids occurred when police attempted to apprehend a Negro driving an allegedly stolen car. A crowd of 30 to 40 Negro spectators gathered. The suspect had one arm in a cast, and some of the younger Negroes in the crowd intervened because they thought the police were handling him too roughly. Protest Activities Approximately 22% of the prior incidents involved Negro demonstrations, rallies, and protest meetings. Only five involved appearances by nationally known Negro militants. 
Protest rallies and meetings were also identified as the final incident preceding five disturbances. Nationally known Negro militants spoke at two of these meetings, and the other three only local leaders were involved. A prior incident involving alleged police brutality was the principal subject of each of three rallies. Inaction of municipal authorities was the topic for two other meetings. White Racist Activities About 17% of the prior incidents involved activities by whites intended to discredit or intimidate Negroes or violence by whites against Negroes. These included some 15 cross burnings in Bridgeton, the harassment of Negro college students by white teenagers in Jackson, Mississippi, and, in Detroit, the slaying of a Negro by a group of white youths. No final incidents were classifiable as racist activity. Previous disorders in the same city. In this category were approximately 16% of the prior incidents, including seven previous disorders, the handling of which had produced a continuing sense of grievance. There were other incidents, usually of minor violence, which occurred prior to seven disorders, and were seen by the Negro community as precursors of the subsequent disturbance. Typically, in Plainfield, the night before the July disorder, a Negro youth was injured in an altercation between white and Negro teenagers. Tensions rose as a result. No final incidents were identified in this category. Disorders in Other Cities Local media coverage and rumors generated by the Newark and Detroit riots were specifically identified as prior incidents in four cases. However, these major disorders appeared to be important factors in all the disorders which followed them. Media coverage and rumors generated by the major riots in nearby Newark and Plainfield were the only identifiable final incidents preceding five nearby disorders. In these cases, there was a substantial mobilization of police and extensive patrolling of the ghetto area in anticipation of violence. Official City Actions Approximately 14% of the prior incidents were identified as action, or in some cases inaction, of city officials other than police or the judiciary. Typically, in Cincinnati, two months prior to the disturbance, approximately 200 representatives, mostly Negroes, of the inner-city community councils sought to appear before the city council to request summer recreation funds. The council permitted only one person from the group to speak, and then only briefly, on the ground that the group had not followed the proper procedure for placing the issue on the agenda. No final incidents were identified in this category. Administration of Justice Eight of the prior incidents involved cases of allegedly discriminatory administration of justice. Typical was a case in Houston a month and a half before the disorder. Three civil rights advocates were arrested for leading a protest and for their participation in organizing a boycott of classes at the predominantly Negro Texas Southern University. Bond was set at $25,000 each. The court refused for several days to reduce bond, even though TSU officials dropped the charges they had originally pressed. There were no final incidents identified involving the administration of justice. In a unique case in New Haven, the shooting of a Puerto Rican by a white man was identified as the final incident before violence. Finally, we have noted a marked relationship between prior and final incidents within each city. In most of the cities surveyed, the final incident was of the same type as one or more of the prior incidents. For example, police actions were identified as both the final incident and one or more prior incidents preceding seven disturbances. Rallies or meetings to protest police actions involved in a prior incident were identified as the final incident preceding three additional disturbances.
the cumulative reinforcement of grievances and heightening of tensions found in all instances were particularly evident in these cases. The Development of Violence Once the series of precipitating incidents culminated in violence, the riot process did not follow a uniform pattern in the 24 disorders surveyed. However, some similarities emerge. The final incident before the outbreak of disorder, and the initial violence itself, generally occurred at a time and place in which it was normal for many people to be on the streets. In most of the 24 disorders, groups generally estimated at 50 or more persons were on the street at the time and place of the first outbreak. In all 24 disturbances, including the three university-related disorders, the initial disturbance area consisted of streets with relatively high concentrations of pedestrian and automobile traffic at the time. In all but two cases, Detroit and Milwaukee, violence started between 7 p.m. and 12.30 a.m., when the largest number of pedestrians could be expected. Ten of the 24 disorders erupted on Friday night, Saturday, or Sunday. In most instances, the temperature during the day on which violence first erupted was quite high. This contributed to the size of the crowds on the street, particularly in areas of congested housing. Major violence occurred in all 24 disorders during the evening and night hours, between 6 p.m. and 6 a.m., and in most cases between 9 p.m. and 3 a.m. In only a few disorders, including Detroit and Newark, did substantial violence occur or continue during the daytime. Generally, the night-day cycles continued in daily succession through the early period of the disorder. At the beginning of disorder, violence generally flared almost immediately after the final precipitating incident. It then escalated quickly to its peak level in the case of one-night disorders and to the first-night peak in the case of continuing disorders. In Detroit and Newark, the first outbreaks began within two hours and reached severe, although not the highest, levels within three hours. In almost all of the subsequent night-day cycles, the change from relative order to a state of disorder by a number of people typically occurred extremely rapidly, within one or two hours at the most. Nineteen of the surveyed disorders lasted more than one night. In ten of these, violence peaked on the first night, and the level of activity on subsequent nights was the same or less. In the other nine disturbances, however, the peak was reached on a subsequent night. Disorder generally began with less serious violence against property, such as rock and bottle throwing and window breaking. These were usually the materials and the targets closest to hand at the place of the initial outbreak. Once store windows were broken, looting usually followed. Whether fires were set only after looting occurred is unclear. Reported instances of firebombing and Molotov cocktails in the 24 disorders appeared to occur as frequently during one cycle of violence as during another in disorders which continued through more than one cycle. However, fires seemed to break out more frequently during the middle cycles of riots lasting several days. Gunfire and sniping were also reported more frequently during the middle cycles. The Control Effort what type of community response is most effective once disorder erupts is clearly a critically important question. Chapter 12, Control of Disorder, and the Supplement on Control of Disorder consider this question at length. We consider in this section the variety of control responses, official and unofficial, utilized in the 24 surveyed disorders, including use or threatened use of local official force, use or threatened use of supplemental official force from other jurisdictions, negotiations between officials and representatives from the Negro community, on-the-street persuasion by counter-rioters. 
Disorders are sometimes discussed as if they consisted of a succession of confrontations and withdrawals by two cohesive groups, the police or other control force on one side and a riotous mob on the other. Often it is assumed that there was no effort within the Negro community to reduce the violence. Sometimes the only remedy prescribed is mobilization of the largest possible police or control force as early as possible. None of these views is accurate we found that a variety of different control forces employed a variety of tactics, often at the same time and often in a confused situation. Substantial non-force control efforts, such as negotiations and on-the-street persuasion by counter-rioters, were usually underway, often simultaneously with forcible control efforts. Counter-rioter activity often was carried on by Negro residents of the disturbance area, sometimes with and frequently without official recognition. No single tactic appeared to be effective in containing or reducing violence in all situations. Local Official Force In 20 of the 24 disorders, the primary effort to restore order at the beginning of violence was made entirely by local police. In 10 cases, no additional outside force was called for after the initial response. In only a few cases was the initial control force faced with crowds too large to control. The police approach to the initial outbreak of disorder in the surveyed cities was generally cautious. Three types of response were employed. One was dispersal, clearing the area either by arrests or by scattering crowds, used in ten cases. Another was reconnaissance, observing and evaluating developments, used in eight cases. In half of these instances, they soon withdrew from the disturbance area, generally because they believed they were unable to cope with the disorder. The third was containment, preventing movement in or out of a cordoned or barricaded area, used in six cases. No uniform result from utilizing any of the three control approaches is apparent. In at least half of the 24 cases, it can reasonably be said that the approach taken by the police failed to prevent the continuation of violence. To the extent that their effectiveness is measurable, the conclusion appears to hold for subsequent police control responses as well. There is also evidence in some instances of over-response in subsequent cycles of violence. The various tactical responses we have described are not mutually exclusive, and in many instances, combinations were employed. The most common were attempts at dispersal in the disturbance area and a simultaneous cordon or barricade at the routes leading from the disturbance area to the central commercial area of the city, either to contain the disturbance or to prevent persons outside the area from entering it, or both. In 11 disorders, a curfew was imposed at some time, either as the major dispersal technique or in combination with other techniques. In only four disorders was tear gas used at any point as a dispersal technique. Only Newark and New Haven used a combination of all three means of control, cordon, curfew, and tear gas. Supplemental Official Force In nine disturbances, involving a wide variation in the intensity of violence, Additional control forces were brought in after there had been serious violence which local police had been unable to handle alone. In every case, further violence occurred, often more than once and often of equal or greater intensity than before. The result was the same when extra forces were mobilized before serious violence. In four cities where this was done, violence nonetheless occurred, in most cases more than once, and often of equal or greater intensity than in the original outbreak. In the remaining group of seven cities, no outside control forces were called because the level and duration of violence were lower. 
Outbreaks in these cities nevertheless followed the same random pattern as in the cities which used outside forces. Negotiation In 21 of the 24 disturbances surveyed, discussion or negotiation occurred during the disturbance. These took the form of relatively formal meetings between government officials and Negroes during which grievances and issues were discussed and means were sought to restore order. Such meetings were usually held either immediately before or soon after the outbreak of violence. Meetings often continued beyond the first or second day of the disorder and, in a few instances, through the entire period of the disorder. The Negro participants in these meetings usually were established leaders in the Negro community, such as city councilmen or members of human relations commissions, ministers or officers of civil rights or other community organizations. However, Negro youths participated in over one-third of these meetings. In a few disorders, both youths and adult Negro leaders participated, sometimes without the participation of local officials. Employees of community action agencies occasionally participated, either as intermediaries or as participants. In some cases, they provided the meeting place. Discussions usually included issues generated by the disorder itself, such as the treatment by the police of those arrested. In 12 cases, prior ghetto grievances, such as unemployment and inadequate recreational facilities, were included as subjects. Often, both disorder-related and prior grievances were discussed, with the focus generally shifting from the former to the latter as the disorder continued. How effective these meetings were is, as in the case of forcible response, impossible to gauge. Again, much depends on who participated, timing, and other responses being made at the same time. Counter-rioters. In all but six of the 24 disorders, Negro private citizens were active on the streets attempting to restore order primarily by means of persuasion. In a Detroit survey of riot areas, residents over the age of 15, some 14% stated that they had been active as counter-rioters. Counter-rioters sometimes had some form of official recognition from either the mayor or a human relations council. Police reaction in these cases varied from total opposition to close cooperation. In most cases, some degree of official authorization was given before the activity of the counter-rioters began, and in a smaller number of cases, their activity was not explicitly authorized, but merely condoned by the authorities. Distinctive insignia were worn by the officially recognized counter-rioters in at least a few cities. In Dayton and Tampa, the white helmets issued to the counter-rioters have made the name White Hats synonymous with counter-rioters. Public attention has centered on the officially recognized counter-rioters. However, counter-rioters are known to have acted independently, without official recognition, in a number of cities. Counter-rioters generally included young men, ministers, community action agency and other anti-poverty workers, and well-known ghetto residents. Their usual technique was to walk through the disturbance area urging people to cool it, although they often took other positive action as well, such as distributing food. How effective the counter-rioters were is difficult to estimate. Authorities in several cities indicated that they believed they were helpful. End of section 18.